0: Hello, and welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also possibly quite infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience at Berlin Zakud, and on the podcast, we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. This is our 20th episode. Whee! (laughs) And we are about to have our 20th live show in Berlin as well in a couple of weeks. Here with me to tell us all about that and some other stuff, is Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Derbyshire. Hi, Katie.
1: Hi, Susan.
0: So the next live show is at Akud. Uh That's February 26th. Right. Always a Tuesday, pretty much
1: always. Which ladies await us? So we're going to hear all about three ladies. Brigitte Reimann, who was an East German writer who um, didn't publish a huge amount while she was alive she had a huge writer's block but she had a very interesting life to go with it and um her english translator or one of her english translators lucy jones is going to tell us about her then i will be talking about um noah inayat khan who was um a, a radio operator in occupied france for the british during world war Two, um and unfortunately well it was a sad ending, let's say that. Um, but very brave woman, very um, accomplished. And uh, we have Mary Schapper who will be telling us in German about um, Fanny Craddock, who just had an unbelievable life, was a, was a, a British, um, well, an early celebrity chef, let's say, and also got up to a lot of very strange things in her private life.
0: Yeah, from what I know about her, she's um, uh, completely bananas. So that's going to be lots of fun. Yeah,
1: I, that's. I'm looking forward to finding out more. Even just tr- summing up her life for the for the event uh, listing was kind of bizarre. So I'm eager to find out more. As well as choosing the photos, right? Oh God, yeah, because she's yeah, she's a, also a remarkable looking woman. Yes, she's sort of like the Barbara Cartland of Turkey or something. <laughs> Yeah, apparently she gave all her dishes uh, French names and she also inve- introduced or invented the prawn cocktail, which is not a drink. No,
0: it wasn't. But if it was, we would serve it to you at a coup. <laughs> <laughs> that could be our special drink
1: for the night. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a bit fishy, though.
0: Yeah, I don't think we're going to be uh, having that anytime soon, but it will be lots of fun. And you will be hearing some of those stories pop up on the podcast very soon as well. But now to this week's dead lady. Driven, independent, talented, worldly, Chinese-American actress Anna May Wong blazed across the silver screen from the 1920s, breaking ground for those who followed, and at the same time becoming a fantastic style icon, even as her opportunities were limited by inherent and blatant discrimination. Dead Lady Show co founder and fan of the glam, Florian Dowsens, has her story, which was part of our ongoing Ladies of Berlin live show series.
2: So, a little over a year ago, Katie and I were applying for funding from the Berliner Zenat, and I was doing research trying to find uh, tote Berlinerinnen who weren't Marlene Dietrich. (laughs) She will prove inescapable. But I wasn't expecting to find a Chinese American movie star who uh, lived in Berlin hung out with Walter Benjamin, made movies here in German. Anna May Wong made a whopping uh, 50 films in her career, only half of which survived, so she started in the silent era. Uh, Yet her roles were limited to submissive maids, exotic dancers, demonic murderesses, and hardened prostitutes. She herself joked that her tombstone should read, she died a thousand deaths and certainly happy endings were very rare in her films, at least for her. She was born in Los Angeles in 1905, a third-generation Californian whose parents ran a laundry just outside LA's Chinatown. They were the only Chinese family on the whole block. She would have seven full siblings, plus her father had another wife and son in China, whom they also supported. At 10, she started um, hauling laundry Um, after school and uh, more glamorously modeling furs. And at 12, she started work here at Ville de Paris, department store in Los Angeles. But what she really loved, even though there she was a counter girl and a model, what she really loved were movies, as she wrote later in life. Seeing pictures meant playing hooky from school, and this I did without my conscience troubling me much. I was learning to think and act for myself. It is this trait of independence which sets me apart, perhaps more than anything else, from other Chinese girls, most of whom obey their parents blindly all their lives. After the movies would finish, she would rush home, as she writes. I would rush home and do the scenes I had witnessed before a mirror. I would register contempt, shame, reproach, joy, anger. I would be the pure girl repulsing the evil suitor, the young mother pleading for her baby, the vamp luring her victim. One day I was doing a big crying scene before my mirror when my mother walked into the room. She must have been amazed to see me with tears streaming down my face, clutching a bit of lingerie to my bosom, but she left the room without a word. (laughs) Her first role was in the Red Lantern. as an extra. She was very excited to be in the movie and then when she went to see the finished product she was like, which one of the Chinese girls? (laughs) There were hundreds. Um, She left high school two years later, age 16. She was still living at home while she was working as an extra in movies and she helped do the books for the laundry in her spare time. Her father insisted on an arranged marriage. Candidates enough, you'd think, since at the time, 87.4% of all people of Chinese descent in the U.S. were men. But Anime knew that didn't make it easier, as she later explained, those men didn't want her. She said, if I had fallen in love with a Chinese, all might have been different now, but I don't see why I should start anything I can't finish. A Chinese friend, American trained, told me he'd never marry anyone except a native Chinese woman, because I want a real wife. There you have it. The two are miles apart. Men choose Hausfrau rather than the companion. And anime was decidedly American. When people asked her where she was really, no, really, <laughs> no, really from, she would say a democracy composed of 48 states. Furthermore, she was a proper flapper, as one journalist found out when she picked her up outside the laundry in her New car, and Anime exclaimed upon seeing this car. My, that's a nifty car! It's the kitty's eyebrows. <laughs> Soon, Anime used her earnings from the movie business to buy her own car, a Willys Knight six-cylinder. Though she quickly wrecked it, as she explains here. I'm the limit. I had been trying to beat a motor cop to a bridge. I beat him all right, but I missed the bridge. <laughs> Quite the flapper. Um, Yet American society would never really see her as a regular flapper since she was so very other. To know just how much, I need to tell you a little bit of American history. Um, After the railroads were mostly completed and the gold mines dried up, resentment grew against the Chinese immigrants who had been working in them uh, resulting in brutal legislation, riots, massacres, that forced these immigrants into urban, often very derelict quarters of town, later called Chinatowns, where legally forced out of all other professions, they could either do laundry, sell vegetables, or run restaurants. In 1900, just before Anna May was born, there were about 2,100 people living in LA's Chinatown, but 90% of them were men, a result of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which basically blocked migration from China. This was the only such country-specific law on the books in America. Another law forced Chinese women wishing to enter the US to prove that they were not sex workers. While this was ostensibly to safeguard moral decency, what it actually was instigated for was out of a fear that bigger families would lead to higher wage demands. Uh, so any Chinese American woman stood out immensely as exotically other, and Anna Mae was immediately cast as Inuit, Native American, there she is playing Tiger Lily and Peter Pan, but her first big breakthrough was the first Technicolor silent film in 1922, called The Toll of the Sea. It was a take on Madame, Madame Butterfly? Madame Butterfly? Madame. Madame Butterfly. There is the ad human beings made to live and breathe before your eyes. At 17, Anna May played the female lead, a Chinese girl who finds an American on the beach, nurses him back to health, and gets involved with him, dreaming of an escape from the village life that she is leading into America. He, however, is ashamed of her and leaves her behind. She raises their son, who has adorably red hair, by herself until he returns with his white wife, at which point, anime's character gives her their child and drowns herself. Anime received great reviews. One critic called her an exquisite crier without glycerin. What made her a familiar name around the world, though, was her role in Douglas Fairbanks's orientalist blockbuster Fantasia, The Thief of Baghdad, in which she plays the equivalent of a Bond girl. It was the biggest film of the year in the US, um, a six-month success in Moscow. It was the longest-running film in Berlin, and it played the Russian provinces for years. Ha! She she didn't get the smart roles. Um, This made her a star in the eyes of the worldwide media, if not necessarily the Hollywood studios. The studios used her fame to attract audiences, prominently featuring her in promotional materials, but then hardly using her in the films or only using her for her sex appeal. Anna Mae complained about never getting to kiss anyone on screen, as the US standards didn't allow for mixed race makeouts. The British had similar rules in place, but for them, it was to ensure their supremacy in the colonies so that the natives wouldn't get ideas. And Chinese censors frowned on kissing altogether as, quote, kissing is a more primitive way of expressing intimacy. (laughs) You can imagine their thoughts on the many shots of anime in a bathing suit, not to mention something that was decidedly not a skirt. (gasps) Yes. Uh, famous photographers loved anime's ease with the camera, as did her fans, but anime was tired of being objectified or murdered on screen, so she planned an escape to Europe, saying, I think I left America because I died so often. Pathetic dying seemed to be the best thing I did. She came to Germany first with her sister Lulu. Uh, she was just 23, it was 1928. The year of opera, Josephine Baker, Marlene Dietrich performing in cabarets, hot jazz clubs underground, everywhere, everybody's smoking. They loved it. The Wong sisters stayed here. Does anybody know where this is? The Esplanade, no? Also the place where Nick Cave sings in Wings of Desire. Anyway, uh, that's where they stayed for months. Walter Benjamin interviewed her and he was completely enraptured by her heart shaped face, saying or writing, Alles, was Herz ist, scheint sich in dessen Augen zu spiegeln. Everything that is heart seems reflected in her eyes. She even partied with these two. Yes, say it. Leni Riefenstahl. I apologize, but there she is. But Marlene, smoking a pipe (laughs) of sorts? Anyway, so this photograph made it all over the world, and Marlena's infamous sort of rumored bisexuality prompted speculation about Anna May's sexuality, which had especially terrible effects in China, where rumors were swirling. Now, whether or not Marlena loved Anna May, Berlin loved Anna May, though it saw her as almost exclusively Chinese. So the Chinese were relatively new to the city, which at the time had 4.3 million inhabitants, about 800,000 more than now. The first Chinese restaurant had just opened three years before, and there were 321 Chinese people in Berlin, 30 of whom were women. Anna May threw herself into her first European film, playing a human piece of driftwood, as one intertitle has it. (laughs) And once again dramatically dying on her own sword. The critics loved it. The 8 Uhr Abendblatt wrote, Anime is ours now and we won't ever let her go. <laughs> she went to London. Um, in London she hung out with Paul Robeson, there he is, and took to the stage opposite a very young Laurence Olivier. But nobody cared about him. She said, I would walk outside into the fog or rain, and they would be there. Young men in their tuxedos, young women with their bangs cut straight and blunt. Those young men lusted for me. Those young women tinted their faces ivory with powder, hoping to duplicate my complexion. She didn't pay for dinner for months. (laughs) The press speculated like mad. The British reviewers weren't uh, that enthusiastic about the pan-European film she was in, denouncing Piccadilly, her next film, as the perfect British film. That means to say it was made by a German with a German cameraman. Its leading lady is an American of Polish extraction and its second lady, an American of Chinese extraction. The art direction is by a foreigner. For the remainder, it is authentically rumored that the great aunt of one of the men who trimmed the lights came from Aberdeen. (laughs) So you see, a typical British film. Uh, this is the Austrian poster. She did not actually appear topless in the film. (laughs) The German press, meanwhile, criticized her next film, Großstadt Schmetterling, because it, and I quote, "...did not dare to let a happy white man share the same bed as the undressed body of a Mongolian woman." The erotic hypocrisy could only have originated in an English boarding school for girls. Yet again, she was stuck between cultures claimed by all and not exactly home in any. Especially so when she shot her next film, The Flame of Love, in concurrent English, French, and German versions. This was before dubbing or subtitles, with only anime appearing in all three versions, speaking all three languages. She'd been training with elocution and language teachers eight hours a day to achieve this magnificent feat. And this skill, particularly her German skill, would come in handy because she next took a role in a stage operetta in Vienna, uh, which ran for 10 months. All this European buzz uh, did not escape Broadway producers who begged her to return. And by begged, I mean like financially <laughs> incentivized her to return. In the quarantine room in New York, one journalist of the many, the the, the huge pack that had come to welcome her and ask her lots of probing questions, one stayed behind asking, "Uh, Miss Wong, well, you see, there was, I mean, to be frank about, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you and, this is literal (laughs) transcription, at which point she smiled and interrupted saying, it's not true and walked off. (laughs) back into her homeland, now boasting an English accent, like Madonna, dropping foreign words here and there and determined to be herself, that Hausfrau, right? That's, that's where that came from. Her play on Broadway ran for 11 months, empowering, this is not from the play, but it's very offensive so I wanted to include it. Um, Her play ran for 11 months, empowering her to take a stand against Hollywood, stating, I was so tired of the parts I had to play. Why is it that the screen Chinese is nearly always the villain of the piece? And so cruel a villain, murderous, treacherous, a snake in the grass, we are not like that. In Hollywood, her success and fame meant that she now earned good money per film, but her parts were still stereotypes. At least in Shanghai Express, her next film, she would play opposite her friend Marlene, playing a fellow sex worker who later in the film murders her rapist and astonishingly survives <sighs> to tell the tale. Here is a two-minute clip from the film, uh, from early on in the film before the murdering, uh, for which she made $6,000 against Marlene's 78166 um, here they are.
0: I have a boarding house in Shanghai. Yorkshire pudding is my specialty, and I only take the most respectable people. Don't you find respectable people terribly dull? No? You're joking, aren't you? I've only known the most respectable people. You see, I keep a boarding house. What kind of a house did you say? A boarding house. Oh.
1: I'm sure you're a very respectable, madam. I must confess, I don't quite know the standard of respectability that you demand in your boarding house, Mrs. Hagerty. i made a
2: terrible mistake. I'd better look after my dog.
1: I beg your pardon? I beg yours. In um,
2: 1933, she returned to Berlin. 1933. Cutting short her stay for obvious reasons, so she set up her own stage show in London called Tuneful Songs and Intriguing Costumes. And she toured all over Europe, Dublin, London, Rome, Naples, Venice. And back in the US, anime started lobbying to get the lead in The Good Earth, the movie adaptation of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by the uh, soon thereafter Nobel Prize-winning author Pearl S. Buck. And Buck, to be fair to her, supported the idea of casting Chinese actors to play the Chinese characters in the book. Um, But the Chinese general, consulting with MGM, was against casting Anna May because, as he quoted, as he said, whenever she appears in a film, the newspapers print her picture with the caption, Anna May again loses face for China. They offered her a smaller part, an unsympathetic character, but she declined saying, I do not see why I at this stage in my career should take a step backward and accept a minor role in a Chinese play that will surround me entirely by a Caucasian cast. The lead role went to um, Luisa Reina an Austrian actress who won her second Oscar for the part. This of course was no fluke as yellow facing was common if criticized even then. I was looking through all these beautiful old fan magazines and there were letters from white people complaining about this process. Uh, uh, anime was done. She left for China where she would study Mandarin and Chinese theater, hoping, as she said, to be able to bring back something unusual maybe find some plays, have them translated, take them on tour. The Chinese media wasn't very happy with her arrival, demonstrators calling her a stooge that disgraces China. She defended herself, saying if she didn't take the roles, the studios would simply give them to Caucasian, Korean, or Japanese actresses. At least she could lend them some authenticity. Critics singled out her American accent in her Chinese, too. And the Chinese government at the time was also very wary of her promoting Western ideals of femininity. And this is just when they had proclaimed a minimum hem lengths for hemlines. So she was out. Uh, after months of charming journalists, however, the media warmed to her. And she thrived in Shanghai, one of the world's three largest cities at the time, saying... The tempo of social life is such a gallop that a person from quiet Hollywood can hardly keep up with it. And my formal mental picture was of people sitting in walled courtyards and drinking tea all day long. So many of my preconceived ideas have been upset that I feel like a Chinese Alice who has wandered through a very strange looking glass." In 1938, after the Japanese invasion, Anime and her family were forced to return to the US. She, at this point, she fell in love with a British man called Eric Maschwitz, um, who directed and produced variety programs for British radio, I wanna say. And she zipped back and forth with him across the Atlantic throughout the late sort of 1930s um, to London and to Paris, inspiring him to write this.
1: A cigarette that bears a lipsticks traces, an airline ticket to romantic places, and still my
0: heart has wings, these foolish things remind me of you.
2: That was Billy Holiday, of course. Um The relationship did not last for more than a year, but anime would later refer to him as the love of her life. She would cryptically, in interviews, discuss why she never had a public relationship with a white man, saying, Life has special difficulties for the Oriental woman in the Western world. I sacrificed many fine friendships through fear that either the man or I might be hurt. When I felt myself becoming fascinated, I put a stop to it before it became love. The press, meanwhile, made much of the fact that her trip to China had given her the peace and joy that others find in a family or marriage. Though she was now in the top 20% of actors in Hollywood in terms of what she made per film, her annual earnings made it clear that she wasn't even breaking the top 100 of working actors, like they just didn't give her enough parts. She appeared on the cover of Look Magazine as the world's most beautiful Chinese girl, but her Orientalist image was unchanged. She was literally put in a box, as we will see in this two-minute section from an Asian-themed review called Hollywood Party.
1: <laughs> Myra, <laughs> At sound of gong, it will be exactly time to present China Lady of Fashion, Anna May Wong. I've just returned to Hollywood after a most marvelous year in China. My first visit to the ancestral country. All the Chinese ladies looked so smart and vivid in the beautiful modern dress of China. And being feminine, it made a deep impression on me, not to mention my pocketbook. I could not resist to go completely Chinese in my wardrobe. Here is an afternoon dress in the famous Peking Blue from the former capital now called Beiping.
2: Uh, Still, even without a lot of parts, she's managed to save enough money to buy an apartment building just a few blocks from the Pacific, down the road from Christopher Isherwood. With war raging around the world, Anna May raised funds for Chinese refugees, auctioning off her immense collection of gowns, jewelry, and artifacts from China. She also gave up her $4,000 paychecks for the two films that she made during the war. When acting jobs dried up, she toured with her solo review and gave lectures on Chinese health and beauty, home remedies like leather pillows to sleep on so you don't disarrange your hair. Um, she also recommended keeping goldfish as watching them exercises the eyes. (laughs) (laughs) The more you know. In 1948, she was diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver. Her health was catching up to her vodka consumption. She was still working though, one of the rare actors who did silent films, talkies and TV. This included a role as a tattoo artist that she loved doing the research for. Um, And she had a one-season primetime TV show called The Gallery of Madame Liu Tsong, in which she played a gallery owner chasing down stolen works of art. Like Murder, She Wrote, but better, I guess. (laughs) Can it? Oh, no. Well, anyway, her health faltered, though. So forcing her to sell her apartment and move in with her brother her younger brother who um, had an Oriental novel decor shop that she would help out in. Um, And though she made plans to return to the movies, she died of a heart attack during an afternoon nap on February 3rd, 1961, aged only 56. Her estate included the apartment and about $80,000, which shows how smart smart she had been with her savings, even with her limited um, acting roles. She was cremated, her ashes placed in her mother's coffin, and her grave remains unmarked. If you want to know more about anime, there are two biographies. The one by Graham Hodges is a little bit racier and with many more typos. And the one by, (laughs) you know, it's by like uh, Paul Grave. It's not like a bad publishing house. It's just no one copy edited it. And the one by Anthony B. Chan is a little bit more political, and very tangent So, whichever you prefer. The titles are, so there's uh, Anna May Wong from Launderman's Daughter to Hollywood Legend by Graham Hodges, the racier one. Then there's Perpetually Cool, The Many Lives of Anime Wang Wong by Anthony P. Chan. In closing, though, I'd like to take you back to this interview she did um, when she was 34 and she had just moved into the apartment that I showed you she was painting. Um, she called it Gate And... Um, In the interview, she said the following, I don't go out much socially these days. I prefer having people here who are interested in the same things that interest me and who like to discuss them. We have little dinners and much conversation and that I enjoy. Contemplation is almost a forgotten thing, yet it will do much for us. What we all need is more solitude, less excitement. We should all try to be by ourselves for certain periods. We all talk too much. So we should put a curb on our tongues and put in more time thinking. We have a way of adopting resolutions and then forgetting them, but now is the only time we have. Now is the time to give away those things we no longer need to those who have need of them. Now is the time to devote ourselves to the ones we love for whom we can do something rather than waste it on indifferent and unimportant persons. Now is the time to think the thoughts that will mean strength and comfort and sustaining force to ourselves and to the world. Thank you.
0: It's very lovely, yeah. Florian Dowsons on Anna Wong. We'll have some great photos of Anna for you and more info as well in our show notes at deadladyshow.com.
1: Thank you, Florian, for those wise words from Anna Wong. Now, I've just got to tell you that our theme song is Little Lily Swing by tri And you can find that on SoundCloud, along with all the episodes of the Dead Ladies Show podcast. And do find us on social media at Dead Ladies Show or drop us a line to info at deadladyshow.com. And help all your friends to find out about us by sharing and reviewing us if you can. Yes, please do. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsons
0: and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me. Thanks to Florian and Katie, and to all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone.